Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, we talk with Osagi Obasagi, professor of law at the University of California, Hastings. We talk about his book, Blinded by Sight, Seeing Race Through the Eyes of the Blind. In this book, he asks, how do blind people understand race? By engaging in qualitative research with individuals who have been totally blind since birth, this project provides an empirical basis from which to rethink core assumptions embedded in social and legal approaches to race and discrimination. And um, the central question of this book is a unique question, which is how do blind people understand race? So tell us a bit about the book and, and how you arrived at that question, what the background is. Sure. So I kind of, uh, you know, sometimes the best topics you kind of back into. Mm-hmm. So this, this project started around uh, 2005 or so when I first saw the movie Ray. Mm-hmm. So I was, so the movie Ray is a, a portrayal of Ray Charles Ray Charles's life. Uh, I believe Jamie Foxx won an Academy Award mm-hmm. for his portrayal. And so I was just watching the movie, and it was kind of I was really struck by the idea that Ray Charles was blind for most of his life, um, but he has really deep racial sensibility. He race was really important to him. The black community is really important to him. And uh, it just really struck me is how a blind person could really have that same type of understanding of race as anyone else. So, you know, at the time, I didn't really think much of it. I just wanted to learn more about blind people's understanding of race. So, you know, I just assumed that there were dozens and dozens of articles out there about race and blindness. I guess, you know, I just figured I'd spend a weekend just kind of just learning more about race. And I remember searching around for weeks and not finding anything. Yeah. And it just kind of blew my mind that um, this is such a kind of, uh, I don't want to say obvious question, but it's just such a central question to a racial identity that, you know, um, why hadn't anybody just kind of asked a blind person, what is race? Like, why hadn't that conversation happened? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, it speaks to the, the centrality of uh, vision to how we think race operates. We, so we assume that race is a visual experience. Mm-hmm. We assume that race is self-evident, that it's salient and important because it's visually obvious. And we kind of assume that, you know, these, and, uh, these differences just kind of impress themselves upon us because of these kind of natural distinctions. Um, and we, un- with those assumptions comes the idea that blind people, because of their inability to see, must therefore not have uh, the same sensibility around race, or they must have a, 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 a that they can't appreciate race the same way that um, sighted people do. So, how did you go about studying this? And so, what were your kind of methodological approaches to this question? Yeah. So I. Um, so I started off with a series of, well, I used mostly snowball sampling. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, at that point, I didn't know any blind people, um, but I had friends of friends who knew yeah. blind people. So um, I just started, you know, asking anyone, you know, you know someone blind? Can I talk to them? Mm-hmm. And uh, every person who I interviewed, I would then ask them to put me in touch with two or three other blind people and just kind of work that network um, and kind of worked out that way. Um, Early on in my interviews, I had one of my um, people I was speaking to say, 
No, well, do you want me to put this up on a listserv so more people can know about it? And this speaks to my own ignorance because at that time I didn't realize that blind people were yeah. you know, on the internet as, as much uh, as everyone else. And, you, and and obviously they have screen readers and braille right. keyboards. So, um, so there are um, definitely um, spaces and chat rooms where blind people are communicating with one another. And that's when the project really took off. So, that, so I went from being able just ha- to just having access to folks locally in the San Francisco, San Francisco Bay Area to being able to have a, a national um, 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 pool of, of folks to interview with. And I actually had some inquiries from folks abroad, um, but I, unfortunately I had to you know turn them down because I wanted to have you just have a sample um, of U.S. Um, respondents. Um, so um, what were the major findings? What were the big takeaways from all your interviews? Yeah, so the major find is that blind people understand race just like anybody else. So you ask a blind person what is race, they say, well, it's skin color, it's facial features, it's, it's all these things, it's everything that, you know, sighted people um, understand about race as well. And, you know, the main finding is, is this really this idea that race, there's nothing really visually obvious or self-evident about race. What it is is how we're socialized to see and understand race. That's really what's important. And what this project really highlights is the notion that this socialization process is so strong that even blind people, in a sense, see race. Mm-hmm. So this visual understanding of race that blind people have is also tied to the fact that race plays as central a role to their lives as it does for many sighted people. So it affects who they date, you know, where they live, all the kind of daily choices that are racialized for, for folks in the sighted community are also thoroughly racialized for, for blind people as well. And what's unique about this project is that you know blind people, by virtue of not being able to see, they're much more in tune and in touch with the social practices that have produced that visual understanding of race. So for sighted people, because we place such an emphasis on what we see, um, we, we're not really aware of how that socialization process really affected our ability to see. And blind people are much more able to kind of make the connection between how they were socialized and how they understand and think about race. And so having a clarity of that um, is important. And because uh, it also highlights the fact that these are the same type of social processes that affect sighted people as well. Mm-hmm. So it's able to kind of make that that connection to show how we're all socialized to think about race in particular ways. Mm-hmm. And in the interviews themselves, how did you get to these issues? Like what specific questions were you asking? Yeah, so I had an interview schedule. So mm-hmm. I asked everyone the same type of, of question. So it was a semi-structured interview, so everyone received the same questions. But, you know, as people said, they respond to quest- responded to various questions, I kind of deviated as needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was really um, asking basic, basic questions, starting off with, you know, what is race? How do you understand race? What, what race are you? Why do you identify that way? Um, and, but things often picked up around issues of dating and sex. Really? Um, yes, because it's because, and what I've found, and this is just a general observation, that people can be politically correct around race when we're talking about general ideas and general topics in life. But once you start talking about who do you want to marry? Who do you want to have kids with? That's where kind of these kind of raw uh, responses to race really come out. Um, and that's where folks are really kind of willing to kind of you know, let their hair down a little bit yeah. in a manner that seems much more safe than in other areas of, of social life. Right. That's um, interesting. You know, I haven't heard that in, in different contexts, but it does make intuitive sense. Yeah. Yeah. So folks can say, oh, I'm not racist. I'm PC. I like everyone. But, but <laughs> I'm not sure if I would date outside my race. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it, that, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And that's where some of the more interesting conversations uh, came up. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's interesting. So thinking broadly about the kind of theoretical areas that you're speaking to, mm-hmm. you outline 
some contributions that your study makes to the social construction of race, race um, equal protection jurisprudence, and critical race theory. Mm -hmm. So three really interesting areas that this project can speak to. Can you kind of walk through those with us? Sure. So the, the contribution to critical race theory is, um, so this book does a lot of different things. Kind of one of the main contributions I hope that it makes is uh, providing an example of how critical race theory and empirical methods can be used together. So in, in many ways, critical race theory and social science methods or empirical methods have been seen as antagonistic mm -hmm. um, approaches to understanding social life, where critical race theory is often seen as a you know, theoretically sophisticated way of understanding race and society, but has been criticized for not being empirically robust. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, social science methods have been seen as, you know, providing a tremendous, tremendously valuable set of tools to be able to collect data and measure, um, measure issues and being able to analyze uh, our data sets. But it's often been criticized for being uh, theoretically thin. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea is that you know we can have new new approaches to understanding race and racial phenomenon by bringing these two fields together, so that you can have an understanding of race that is both theoretically sophisticated and empirically robust. Mm -hmm. And this book is really trying to offer one of the first attempts at doing that. And you know you'll see throughout the book that it has a lot of aspects of it that are derived from critical race theory. You know, I use a lot of narrative storytelling. I, I use a lot of doctrinal critiques that are similar to, that are familiar to critical race theorists. But at the same time, it is a traditional social science study where, you know, I developed a, a research agenda, collected mm -hmm. data, analyzed data, and did everything that, you know, a good sociologist should do. Right. And then how about, um the equal protection law. I think that's really an interesting and I know, an area I probably wouldn't have immediately thought of. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, part one, an interesting aspect of this is that, you know, equal protection is an area of law that is kind of the most powerful tool we have for guaranteeing equality. Uh, but it's also an area of law that's been under attack. And, mm -hmm. and for the most part, you know, many people have criticized equal protection is now not really being worth anything in terms of how notions of colorblindness have kind of taken over our understanding uh, of equal protection, how the intent doctrine has basically kind of weakened the adopt the um, the uh, uh, equal protection jurisprudence from the inside, uh, and so what the book does that it it really provides uh, it uses the, the the interviews and the and the finding that you know race is not visually obvious but socially constructed as a way to kind of counter some of those attacks. So the most obvious connection is with colorblindness, right? Mm -hmm. So colorblindness is this idea that government should not take notice of race for any reason, even for remedial purposes. And it's based upon this metaphor that kind of presumes that being blind race will lead to equality. That metaphor itself is embedded in turn, is embedded by, or embedded with an idea about what it means to be blind and what one's experience with race would be if you perform a blind. So right. embedded in this whole idea is this notion that blind people that live in a racial utopia yeah. and, that sighted, and that sighted people can mimic that utopia uh, through laws and policies that are colorblind. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's a very seductive metaphor, mm -hmm. and oftentimes people accept it without really thinking about it. And this book is really an opportunity by taking that, is an opportunity to take that metaphor seriously and say, you know, blindness doesn't necessarily lead to a celebration of racial equality. Mm -hmm. Actually, I talked to a lot of blind people, and in fact, their understanding and experience with, with race is not unlike anyone else's. So it really, it, it's really a counter to the colorblind ideal Mm -hmm. By taking the metaphor seriously and showing how it's much how issues of race and equality are much more about how we're socialized to think about an issue rather than 
um, using blindness as a, as a mechanism to get the state out of thinking about race. Right. So my final question is on your contribution to the way we think of the social construction of race and also the way that the book challenges these kind of core assumptions we have. So what are these core assumptions and, and how are you working to kind of make us rethink those? The social construction of race, as you know, is kind of central to how a good sociologists <laughs> should think right. about race. You know, it's this idea that race is uh, not real, it's not biological. Um, in fact, it's simply the product of a series of social and political forces that have taught us to think about race in a particular way. So part of what the social construction of race does is that it assumes that um, racialized bodies are in and of themselves that the difference is obvious and that we can see the difference. And what the social construction of race does is that it focuses on the process of how social meaning comes to attach to various bodies. So the critique around social constructionism is that there's nothing natural in the attachment of this, there's nothing natural with the attachment of social meaning mm -hmm. to uh, human difference. Mm -hmm. But it, it assumes that that difference itself is visually obvious and meaningful. And what this book does is tries to move beyond what many have seen as a constructed nature of race and tries to provide what I call a constitutive theory of race that tries to look at how we're socialized to even see races as visually different and the social processes that make certain human bodies look like they are separate and distinct entities. Mm -hmm. So trying to move the conversation away from simply the meaning attachment conversation and towards an understanding of how we're socialized in a sense see race as a meaningful social reality. Those are all the questions I have. Great. Um, it's an excellent book. Thank you. And um, we're really lucky that you came by Minnesota on this gloomy day <laughs> to, to talk with us. So um, we appreciate it. My pleasure.